first of all, I'm, uh, my name is Elida Carrozza and I'm a senior researcher here at PRIO. I work on China's foreign policy and its um, uh, attempt to spread influence and power abroad. Um, I think this seminar comes at a very interesting point in China's relations with the region. Uh, not only we've seen over the last few years uh, how uh, the Middle East uh, has become a key point in China's Belt and Road Initiative, um, so it's clearly an important uh, uh, destination of Chinese investments uh, and business, uh, uh, but it also uh, over the last even just few weeks, actually, we've seen how China has attempted to it's, it really expand um, its role as what they call conflict mediator or brokering uh, some kinds of agreements, uh, and we've seen the uh, the agreement between with Saudi and Iran just a few weeks ago, um, and just actually on uh, I think Tuesday or Wednesday, uh, the Chinese Foreign Minister Qing Gang was talking to his counterparts in Israel and Palestine, uh, offering their support in mediating the conflict. Although he was told that that's easier said than done. My point is, uh, there is definitely a growing presence of of China uh, and Chinese influence in the region. Uh, within, of course, the context of, uh, of, of a place where the security architecture so far has been very much dominated by the U.S. So all of this and more will be unpacked by our guests today. Um, so a very warm welcome to um, Guy Barton at the very left, or your very right, <laughs> who is an adjunct professor in international affairs at the Brussels School of Governance and has previously uh, held research and teaching appointments in Dubai, Palestine, Iraq, and Malaysia. He was recently a visiting fellow in the Middle East Center at the LSC in London. Um, he holds a PhD in, uh, in government and a BSc from the LSC, also and a, a Master of Studies from London University. He wrote a recent book which is titled China and the Middle East Conflicts, Responding to War and Rivalry from the Cold War to the Present, that was published in um, 2020 by Routledge. So today he was actually um, uh, going to talk to us about the context to China's approach to conflict management in the Middle East and give us a little bit of a, um, a historical perspective and also some examples from Syria and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, to my immediate left, uh, uh, Jonathan Fulton is Assistant Professor of Political Science at the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at the Sheikh Zayed University in Abu Dhabi. Uh, he received his PhD in International Relations from the University of Leicester in UK, uh, where his dissertation focused on China's relations with the Gulf Cooperation Council member states. Uh, he has written widely on China-Middle East relations for both academic and popular uh, audiences, and he's the author, among others, of uh, China's Relations with Gulf Monarchies and co-editor of External Power and the Gulf Monarchies. Um, so today he was talking, uh, he's uh, going to talk about China's approach to the um, Middle East, uh, Northern African region in the context of its deteriorating relationship with the U.S. and how that impacts the region. Last but not least, my uh, very own colleague, <laughs> senior researcher at PRIO, uh, Julia Palik. Uh, she works on the effect of military and non-military third-party interventions on civil war outcomes, and her geographical region of expertise is precisely the Gulf, and uh, particularly the conflict in Yemen. She's going to offer some uh, comments. Um, so uh, without further ado, I'm going to give the word to Jonathan and then Guy, and they're going to talk for about 10 minutes each, and then... Uh, again, Yulia will offer some comments, and then we can open up for um, questions and answers. Please, Jonathan, the floor is yours. Thanks, Laria. So first, thanks for the invitation. Uh, it's really a pleasure to be here. It's my first time in Norway. Um, I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. I'm from Canada, so it's nice to get out of the desert and into a proper climate. This feels really nice, although I, I understand I got lucky with the weather. So I've been living in Abu Dhabi since 2006. Before that, I was living in South Korea and Taiwan. So I was, I was a China guy before I became a Middle East guy. I'm kind of an accidental Middle East guy. Um, when I arrived in the Gulf, I started thinking about China's relations with Gulf countries. And at the time, it was pretty much limited. In the, um, academically and theoretically, most people just thought of it as uh, you know, energy. And that was basically the whole story. I remember starting my PhD in 2010 and saying I was doing a China GCC dissertation. And uh, this guy was interviewing and was like, oh, you, you poor, <laughs> poor guy. There's, how are you going to write 100,000 words about this subject? You know, there's nothing there except oil. Uh, by the time I finished, I was either very lucky or very prescient. But uh, by the time I was done, it was a very odd topic. Um, 
I've been doing a lot of work for American think tanks and American government because they've become very interested in China's position in the Middle East and in the Gulf in the past few years. Um, so I thought I'd talk about just, we've, we've seen a lot of headlines and I think the headlines are very exaggerated. You know, it's always, as the US pulls out, China fills the void. You know, as if China, A, has the capacity or B, the interest in pursuing the same kind of role or position the US does. And I think that's, that's very, very uh, dramatically wrong. Um, but it is driving a lot of US perceptions. When I talk to folks in US government, they seem very, very concerned about China's growing presence. Uh, when I speak to my students or people around the Middle East, they start with this assumption that China is already this established power in the region, uh, but they don't know anything about it. So it, it's very strange. When I talk to Chinese, they say, why does everybody think this? Like, we have no power in the Gulf, we have no presence, we're just there making money, but everybody has these, projects these kind of neuroses on, our, on us. So I think there's a big gap between perception and reality. Um, the first thing, um, I think great power competition is the framework to, to look at this. You know, whether we like it or not, that's the decision folks in Washington have made, that's the decision people in Beijing have made, and that's just driving how a lot of this is happening. Um, other countries that have deep presences, whether it's India or, or the UK or the EU or whoever, um, are, are seen both by the US and China and as uh, local actors as, as kind of secondary. Uh, they don't seem to, aren't, aren't seen as moving the needle in the same way those two countries are. Um, it's interesting because of course the US has identified in this great power competition or strategic competition, the Indo-Pacific is the priority theater. It's where the, uh, the US sees its, its greatest range of interest being met. Um, I think that's consistent with China. China also sees Asia. Um, they don't use Indo-Pacific by any stretch, but when they, when they think about Asia, that's of course where, where China's biggest sets of interests are. And I think they're very, very concerned about uh, America's presence in the region. I think this overwhelms almost everything China thinks about is uh, its, its immediate periphery, which is why it's always surprising to me to see this analysis of China being this, this major player in the Gulf or in the Middle East, because it's, it's really a second or third tier um, interest for China. Obviously, they're very preoccupied with domestic political economic issues, uh, whether it's high youth unemployment or the disparity between you know, the inland and the coastal cities, or whether it's a slowing economy or trying to maintain regime legitimacy. That probably is about 80 to 90% of what Chinese leaders are thinking about. When they think about international politics, they're thinking about, you know, they share borders with, I think, a dozen or 13 countries. Most of them are either weak states, failing states, or hostile to China. Um, a lot of them are US allies or partners. I, I was having lunch with a Chinese Middle East specialist last week, and he kept talking about Chinese vulnerabilities in Asia. You know, there was, there was a story, not story, you know, last month, I believe, the Philippines gave China, uh, the US access to three different um, naval facilities. He brought this up in conversation four or five times, just talking about what a disaster this is for China in Asia. So they're preoccupied with, with Asia as well. So I think why the Middle East is so important is this is a place where both countries have very deep interests. It's important to both, but it's also not a primary concern for either. So this is a place where they can play geopolitics um, and, and kind of poke at each other in a way that we've seen in a big way in the past few years. In my analysis until recently, I, I always described China in the Gulf as enjoying the benefits of the US security architecture. You know, and the, the IR theory I used was strategic hedging. I know this gets used for everything, but um, strategic hedging for a second tier great power is I think there's been some pretty interesting work on this. When you come into a competitive region and you don't want to disrupt it, you want to continue getting these you know, benefits, um, you, you engage with every country in the region, you alienate nobody, you don't disrupt the, uh, the prevailing architecture, you don't, um, you don't antagonize the uh, hegemon. And I think that's what China's done. They've been developing relations with the Saudis and the Iranians and the Emiratis and the Qataris and the Israelis and the Palestinians, although I don't think that's going anywhere. Um, you know, they've been doing this because their, their, their interests are primarily economic. So engage everybody, focus on things that everybody needs, and don't antagonize the US. That's been the game plan up until about 2018. And I think that started to change. Um, obviously, this isn't just about the US and Trump, although that's a big part of it. It's also about Xi Jinping and China. Um, I think 
China was very satisfied to engage with the Middle East as a US-led region. Uh, when the trade war was started, I think that changed. I think China felt that they couldn't trust their primary competitor uh, to secure their interests. And I don't think the typical IR theories of balancing or bandwagoning apply, but I don't think hedging applies anymore either. I think China's been looking at what the US does in the region. You look at the trade war, and I think they realized they needed a more muscular approach. Uh, then you look at a lot of American decisions in the Gulf, whether it was pulling out of the JCPOA, the assassination of Soleimani, not doing much when its allies or partners were attacked by Iran, the, you know, the attack to Saudi Aramco, the attack on Fujairah and the UAE. You know, the US was, was largely absent at that point. And I think what China started doing was saying, look, we can build some space between the US and its allies and, and test this idea of US reliability. You know, there's already this overwhelming perception in the Middle East that the US wants to leave, um, that the US wants to focus on the Indo-Pacific. Everybody in the Gulf, despite all evidence to the contrary, believes the US is leaving. And I think China's been feeding that. You know, so you saw in 2021, the foreign minister, Wang Yi, then foreign minister, uh, paid two very high profile trips to the Middle East and started promoting like, this is how China would, would engage with you guys. Not as, a, not as an extra regional hegemon, not a power, but will support your vision of the Middle East. The Middle East is for the people of the Middle East to decide. You don't need foreign patriarchs. He's obviously talking about post-colonial powers in the US. I'm saying, we'll engage with you differently. He's not talking about we're going to come in and provide you know, a military presence, we're not going to engage with you on security stuff, we'll just support you in, in engaging matter, things that matter to you. Really what's been doing, I think, was just testing or pushing back against the US. You know, like this Israel-Palestine outreach, nobody believes China has the answer to this. But, you know, by, by just making people question America's reliability, I think that helps China in other areas, especially places like in, the, in Asia, where US alliances threaten China. So I think China's been looking at the Middle East and the Gulf, A, as a place where it has interest and it's important, but also a place where they can, they can challenge American um, power uh, that, that threaten China and other theaters. So it's been pretty interesting to watch. You know, somebody who thinks about geopolitics a lot, I happen to live in a very fascinating laboratory. It's also exhausting because it never stops. Sometimes I would like to think, why didn't I focus on Canadian foreign policy <laughs> where nothing ever happens and then I could rest. But um, it's been very, very exciting. And like, like Ilaria said, the past couple of months, it never, it's been a lot of very big um, headline grabbing events, which I'm sure Guy will talk about in, in more detail. But that, that's been you know, getting a lot of attention, but it never stops. It's been happening. It's a kind of a, the, the baseline of everything for the past few years. And I think it's probably going to continue. So I'll stop here. I'm sure that's more than 10, but. That's actually less. Really? Nice. So, you know, you actually have time for. Well, no, I think I'd rather hear the questions that, that you all have and, and that Julie has so we can, you know, see Fantastic. what you guys are Yeah, about. great timekeeping. Um, and I think uh, a lot of the stuff that you said actually about great power competition and how that has become an inevitable lens almost to read China's engagement in the Middle East, I see it. Um, parallels in the work that I've done in, uh, on China's presence in Africa, sure. because there it's, it's literally just great power competition and actually US foreign policy in Africa, it's been formulated uh, from Washington in terms of yeah. being anti-China, anti-Russia to an extent, and I don't think that's been very productive. But anyway, um, thank you, Jonathan. Uh, Guy? floor is yours now. Okay, thank you. Well, um, thank you very much also for inviting me and for allowing me to come to Oslo. Like Jonathan, it's the first time for me to come to Norway. And so, and obviously having followed the work of the PRIO as well, I'm very, you know, flattered to have been invited because I, I mean, I've used your work. I've, I've read, I've followed your, the, the publications you put out. So it's a big deal for me to be here. So I appreciate it. Um, I also, you know, wanted to just say um, I, there's a lot of what, what Jonathan's already said, which I'm not, I don't, I don't take issue with, and rather than me sort of repeating it, um, because I think there's, it's, it's, I, I'll, I'll fully endorse what he was saying, particularly on the, the fact that it's about geopolitics, it's about, um, you know, the, uh, the this, this, situ this, this situation whereby, um, you know, a lot of what's being driven there is uh, economic. And what I wanted to talk a little bit about today, and I won't spend too much, I mean, I'm just going to sort of set, set the scene for you because I thought maybe I'd much rather hear what you have to say. Um, just to sort of make, a lot of my work has been um, looking at sort of China in sort of the broader perspective in the Middle East. Um, I came to looking at China in the Middle East uh, 
during my time, during my postdoctoral work in, in Palestine when I was at the Beers 8 University. And one of the things that we were looking at was, you know, alternative ways to support and, and facilitate uh, development for Palestine. And so one of the areas that, you know, my, my, my colleagues then asked me was to look at sort of non-traditional, you know, partners, non-traditional donors. And, and at the time, about 2010, 2011, you know, the BRICs were the coming thing. So I started looking into, into these, these, this group of of actors, these these states and their support, and found myself, you know, again, there wasn't much there at the time. Um, when, but certainly when I started looking into sort of, you know, what the Chinese were doing in relation to Israel and Palestine, uh, where, where I was, at, where I, which I was working on, there was certainly an appetite and an enthusiasm to find out more. And this is actually really interesting because actually, you know, China is. Ilaria pointed out at the very start that, uh, you know, in some ways China is a new actor or sort of there's this new discussions going on about China in the region, but really actually China is an old actor. And so a lot of what I've been looking at is sort of trying to situate China's uh, current relationship with the region, you know, in a broader perspective. And so what I've been, uh, so, so the book that I put, that Ilaria alluded to was really a study of Chinese, you know, relations in the Middle East with reference to conflict since the Cold War. And I think what you find is actually, you know, this, this that is, today is very economic. It's, very, it's, it's also one in which the Chinese don't necessarily want to be sort of replacing the United States, as, as we talked about. But it's also one in which, you know, it's very transactional and quite self-interested, um, but in a way that uh, is, is sort of is, is shaped around things like, you know, discussions around the Belt, Belt and Road uh, and development. Um, what you have, though, of course, in the past is a Chinese uh, relationship with the region, which was much more adversarial, um, much more confrontational, and a lot of that was bound up with the with the nature of the time. So the Cold War, obviously, it was a very ideological time, and within that, you had again still geopolitics. You had you know Chinese uh, the, the Sino-Soviet split, which I think drove a lot of China's relations in the, in the region. Um, obviously, coming to the party late, you know they were the secondary communist. Actor, so they were they were not they were not able to gain the kind of uh, attention and, and support that that, that Moscow did. Uh, so they had to sort of look around for for other actors. They were very supportive of, of the Arabs, and there was and it sort of comes to a sort of a you know a point in, in 1967 where they're very much on the Arab side as opposed to the Israelis. Uh, but even in the 1950s, you know, sort of they were supporting the Algerian nationalists against against the French. Um, when it came to the PLO, they, they even provided small amounts of, of arms to, to, the, to, the, to, the, to the PLO. Um, but of course, it's also important to keep in mind that China's uh, presence at this time is very, very slight, very limited. It, 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 when we compare and contrast it to today, you know, today China's footprint is large and deep. But in those days, it wasn't. And so maybe that allowed a certain degree of flexibility. But it also meant very limited uh, capacity as well. Um, what you find, of course, in 1967, there is this kind of rethinking within Chinese uh, thought. Because you know, up, up until that point, most of China's relations are either with sort of radical, nas radical nationalist regimes like Gamal Nasser in Egypt, or with the PLO or the Algerian nationalists. After that point, you start to see a realization that maybe there is a need for a more um, you know, official uh, relationship with the states in the region. And so what you start to see from the 1970s onwards is uh, a, a um, more, uh, you know, sort of greater attempt, attempt to establish official and diplomatic relations. Of course, keeping in mind that you can't look at this without, without taking, taking into consideration, you know, domestic situation, of course, which was obviously very sort of complex and in flux, especially following Mao's death and, eventually, and Deng Xiaoping's eventual uh, to rise to power by the late 1970s, early 1980s. From that point on, you then have a very clear, you know, economic relationship. But it's one in which, um, you know, it is, as, as, as Jonathan's pointed out, always remains you know, a secondary, even you know, third order uh, concern. Um, really, middle, the Middle East as a region starts to enter into sort of you know, greater consciousness from, from around 1993, 94 onwards. And this is the point at which China becomes you know, a major energy importer as opposed to you know, a producer of its own. And you start to see uh, Chinese you know, efforts at, uh, at building, at, at build, uh, establishing economic Partnerships, particularly in in the energy sector, with a, with with sanctioned countries like Sudan and like Iraq, 
Um, but of course, this is also the unipolar moment. So this is also the moment where you know the Chinese are not really willing to push or, ch or push up against you know American dominance in the region. So you see things like the Gulf War in 1991 or even you know 2003, where you know the the Chinese very much sit out of it. I mean, they make their views known, but they don't necessarily try to, you know, do anything in, in comparison, which is why I think it's interesting to look at these, you know, the, the recent uh, recent um, developments that have been taking place, whether it's vis-a-vis you know, -vis Iran and Saudi Arabia and China's sponsorship of that, or this recent discussion last week about Israel and Palestine. Um, of course, now, you know, what's, what China says matters, you know, matters a lot more. Um, but I think, you know, where we have a bit of a lag but in, is, 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 is the political or the conflict uh, dimension. You know, China's presence is very much an economic one, um, but, it is, you know, but, but it's sort of following, following behind when it comes to conflict. The, one of the things that I've found quite notable is that for a long time they were skirting over you know, any attempt to, uh, you know, to play a role in the region's conflicts, primarily because they are so complex. Uh, but there is this sense that you know as more as more investment is put into the region whether it's financial or or capital or, or chinese businesses doing work there is there is going to be a greater interplay between you know chinese relations there and the conflicts that that have happened i think 2011 and the libyan uprising was a wake up call for the chinese in this respect um, which has also followed a few years later when with 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 the with the with the outbreak of of saudi intervention into yemen in both of those instances you see the chinese you know having to pl uh, having to uh, organize the logistics of evacuating their, their nationals um, in Yemen, also doing that in collaboration with, with other countries as well. Um, at the time, portrayed as a, as a success, although others might say that this was a bit of a failure because you know, there wasn't an anticipation or some consideration to what might happen if, some, if, if, the, if, uh, if something, should, something like this should, something should go wrong. Um, this is also, I think, some, there is some, I think, realization, I think, in, in, in the, in, amongst some of the scholars who are working on this and an attempt to try and retrofit um, some of the thinking about how China might facilitate and support conflict management or alleviation in the region uh, by things like, by things through like the peace, peace through development uh, idea. This is a paradigm that, that scholars like Sundergang and others have talked about. It's appeared you know, here and there, but as far as I can tell, Jonathan may be able to correct me, I don't think it's been taken up officially yet. But this is this idea of you know, trying to use Chinese capital, investment, things like the Belt and Road, as a way to support development in the region. And that, so it's a very broad idea, the assumption being that you know, if, we, if we help, help um, you know, put, in, put in place the infrastructure, help develop markets, help economic growth, that this will be sort of like a rising tide that will, in effect, flood out the, any grievances that exist. I mean, there are, I mean, there are some criticisms, and certainly we might want to get into that and talk about, you know, what this, what this, uh, whether whether this works would work in practice. But this certainly seems to be one one of the ways that the Chinese are talking about, or at least, you know, those who who think about the Middle East and make it their priority are, are talking about are talking about it. Um, if I may, just have I, oh, I did have a slide, which, but I don't think it's 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 there. Um, never mind. It did <laughs> Technical failures as, as ever. I mean, I, what I had hoped was within my slide, it was basically taken from, from the book, which shows, you know, sort of just a, a, chrono, a chronology of how China's uh, relations, relationship with the region has progressed, particularly in terms of conflict. Um, you know, the, I think the, the sort of the main points to be, to be made, and we can talk a little bit more about, you know, the specifics of, of conflict and, conf and Chinese conflict management in the region. The main point I just want to say, sorry, and I, this is the last point I will make, <laughs> Um, that when you're looking at conflict, obviously there's you know, a wide range, a spectrum in, in which we can think about it, um, you know, from you know, the creation or the exacerbation of conflict, which is something that China is doing in, to some extent back in the 1960s, early 1970s. We've moved away from that. I don't think the Chinese are keen in exacerbating conflict anymore, being you know, a, a key you know, economic player and international player on the ground. What they want is, is uh, a, a minimization of conflict, a removal of conflict. But of course, there is a tension between you know, sort of conflict management, which, is in, which could be cap captured by ideas like peacekeeping or negative peace, the removal of violence. But that doesn't resolve you know, the fundamentals of the conflict, doesn't root out 
you know, the causes of conflict, which is, um, you know, which is often associated more with peacemaking and peace building. And I think the last point I want to make about this is the Iran-Saudi uh, talks and also the, um, the, the Israel, sort of the proposed mediation on Israel-Palestine. In both of those instances, I think what you're seeing there is more, you know, Chinese conflict management um, in the sense that these are very thin, or the Saudi-Iran agreement is very thin. There's no mechanism for you know, enforcing it. Um, and as for the Israel-Palestine talks, well, we, we can get into it, but I feel that the, first of all, they'd need to be invited in, and, the subs and there's no, no talk about the substance of it at all. So you know, in terms of resolution, not much at all. Sure. And I'll stop there. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, I thought it was very interesting when you were talking about ideology uh, in the beginning, um, because on the one hand, of course, I think one of the reasons why China has been very successful at branding itself um, uh, as a potential conflict mediator, not just in the Middle East, but also elsewhere, is precisely because they project this image uh, of China as a neutral country. But of course, now I think the last part Party Congress and the last two sessions in March are gonna, you know, they, they left at least me with an idea of China uh, as, as, a, as somewhere where ideology is really very much at the center of, of how politics is done. Of course, it's a completely different type of ideology than the one. It's not, it's not much about communism, uh, uh, I think, but, uh, but ideology is there, right? And so I, I wonder how that is gonna play out and if it's gonna affect this sort of neutrality image that China uh, is attempting to project. But I'll shut up and uh, please, uh, Julia, if you want to offer some comments and reflections. Wonderful. Thank you very much and a very warm welcome to everyone. Guy and Jonathan, very interesting insights. Thank you very much for coming and sharing your perceptions. So I'm here not as a China expert, uh, but someone who has been working on the Middle East and specifically on the Gulf region for quite a few years. But whether I like it or not, I have to engage with this topic no matter what I do. And throughout the years, although I wanted to focus maybe on domestic issues, it is impossible to ignore China. And I think this is, this is a first, although seemingly trivial, but important observation. And uh, while preparing for this seminar, I thought about making three points that I would like to invite both the audience and the two of you to discuss it later. So the first is that we've heard it throughout this discussion and read it uh, in so many places, right, that China's engagement is primarily economy-driven. I personally do not believe that the extent to which China is involved economically is possible to separate from political influence. These two things at a certain threshold in my mind start coming together and China is very deeply embedded in the region. I really, really appreciated what Jonathan was saying about popular portrayals of China, especially in the Western media. I wish I could read Mandarin and see how a Chinese newspaper talk, if at all, uh, about similar issues. And just then to add this add to this representation from uh, following up on one guy was talking about the Saudi-Iranian uh, recent deal. I think it's important to keep in mind that it wasn't China who mediated this agreement because it was Iraq and Oman for approximately two or three years uh, who have been working very hardly behind closed doors and China stepped in. Uh, and Guy was kind enough to share a few resources with me ahead of the seminar. And I think this quasi-mediator as a concept that uh, several scholars and uh, you in your work have been referring is a, is a useful way of looking at it. That it is a particular way of mediation and facilitation, and this is an interesting angle for Norwegian facilitators and peacemakers, that what kind of a strategi strategy it is when a great power steps into already kind of established dialogues and patterns, right? This is something to think about and it might be an interesting new way of conflict resolution and facilitation. My second point relates to uh, my larger research agenda uh, that we haven't really touched upon because we talked about politics, economics, and conflict resolution. But if you open the news, not once you read about China's military aid or export to these countries. Mm -hmm. And then hence again, this kind of zero-sum understanding that Chinese weapons will replace US weapons, etc. Now this is not gonna happen anytime soon. The Gulf countries are 
capable, because of their financial background, to sustain two different fleets, let's say a US fleet and a Chinese fleet. But the interoperability, this is like a technical term that you can't operate certain aircrafts with Chinese communication systems. This might sound like a very boring technical detail, but it has very significant strategic um, implications when it comes to weapons purchases. So it's important to keep in mind that this kind of crowding out the US as a security provider, as Jonathan was referring to, is neither in the interest uh, nor in the capacity of China, especially not in its uh, certain, um, not in its uh, military stage as it stands over now. Uh, I also want to throw in an interesting detail from 2017 uh, that China has thus far only one military base, permanent military base, and that's in Djibouti, uh, which is obviously close to the region, right? Uh, and if you just compare it with the, I don't even know the exact number of uh, US military bases around the world, and especially in the, as uh, Jonathan was mentioning, the most recent Philippines one, for example. And my third point would be, and this is, uh, uh, a nice short rhetorical question to sum it up is that um, I would like to complement possibly this great power competition perspective more with a middle power perspective in terms of thinking about how does the Middle East as such, we can't really homogenize this, but let's say Gulf countries influence China, because I do not believe necessarily that this is a unidirectional relationship, and I think it's important to open up these conversations. And I leave it there. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Julia. I think you're raising very interesting points, um, and particularly something I've also been asking myself in my own research, whether there is a new model of conflict resolution that China is proposing, or whether it's just a kind of rehashing of like its sort of rhetorical positions, but there's not much substance to it. Um, so before we open up, I wonder if maybe Jonathan and Guy had some um, res immediate reactions to, to her comments, and then, yeah, we, we, we can turn to the audience. Sure. So on the military side, I, I agree it is interesting. I guess it fits into your first point, too, about uh, you know the difficulty in separating the economic and the strategic. There was a story in Abu Dhabi a couple of years ago that China was supposedly building a military installation at this port just outside uh, Abu Dhabi. And it was reported in the Wall Street Journal, and immediately the Americans got very, very upset about this. Um, my first take on this was, my God, this would be so ridiculous if China were doing it and if the UAE were allowing it, because obviously the U.S. relationship is everything for a lot of these Gulf countries in terms of security. Um, the UAE would have to know that by letting China build a military facility, this would sever the U.S. relationship and probably provoke uh, some kind of response because I'm sure the U.S. would want to make uh, send a message to other allies and partners. If you choose China over us, this is the price you pay. Um, and for China, my thought was, well, this would be foolish because they have, like you said, they have one base in the world. They can't project power into the Gulf. They would be completely severed by the U.S. Navy from the Indian Ocean region. So it, it would seem very short-sighted. So I, I was very skeptical of the idea that this was a, a proper base, you know. What I did think was, you know, Guy brought up Libya and, and Yemen. Um, in both those instances, the Chinese government got a lot of pressure from, from Chinese citizens saying, how is it you guys, you know, if, if one American were killed, they'd send in the Marines. How is it that we don't have the ability to protect our citizens? You send us overseas and you can't take care of us. Now there's 400,000 Chinese in, in the UAE. I was thinking, if anything, this is a, a message to the domestic audience to say, look, we can take care of you guys if, if you are overseas. We have ways to get you out of a, a difficult situation. I didn't think it was a way to challenge American preponderance so much as just a way to placate you know, a domestic audience. In terms of the military um, arms sales and things, this is interesting because, again, living in Abu Dhabi, there's a big arms uh, um, conference every year. They held one in, I think it was February. And there's an announcement of all these Chinese weapons they're buying and Chinese fighter jets and all this stuff. And of course, everybody went, oh my God, this is a big deal. Um, I remember talking to somebody who works at the, the UAE air base. And I thought this was a very interesting point. They said, we have a very small air force. We already have to train everybody, not many pilots, on US systems and French systems. Now we're going to train them on Chinese systems too. Like, we can't do it. There's not enough expertise. We don't have the resources. Those jets are going to sit in a hangar someplace. This was an insurance policy we bought from the Chinese. You know, if we buy expensive stuff from them, then they'll look after us. You know, it's not going to actually play a very big role. 
you know, everybody in the in most of the Gulf militaries, when they get training, it's it's in Texas. They're not sending people to to China. You know, they're not working with the Chinese on this stuff. It's very shallow at this point. Now, I think it'd be foolish to think it will always be shallow, but right now, it's really, you know, that China's not seen as uh, a very significant significant actor in this stuff. So I guess that's that's my point. Except I agree with the mid power perspective because I'm not from the U.S. or China. And this kind of narcissism of great powers is really um, drives me crazy. Um, but it does shape the, the space a lot of us have to act in. The Gulf countries have agency, um, but I think it's limited because they're so, um, you know, they depend on the U.S. for so much. Yeah. So at the end of the day, I think that agency only goes so far. Uh, can I just add, so I agree with that, and certainly the, when we look at sort of, you know, Chinese arms sales to, to the Middle East, their magnitudes of size smaller than the, than, than the Americans. So, you know, doesn't mean it's not something to watch for, but certainly right now, it's, I don't think it's, it's, it's not the issue that I think it's, it's made out to be. The only, only point I was going to actually make was the last comment point that, that Julia flagged up about, you know, the in, sort of the interaction between the Gulf and China, that it's not one way, and that's very much that's very true. Um, if you look at if you look at sort of the you know sort of the the volumes of trade and investment, it's very much going both ways now. It's and it's also it's, it's both and it's and the and the areas that it's covering are not only what it's, it's widening and it's deepening. So it's it's a mistake to think that this is only driven by you know energy and energy concerns. You know the Chinese, yes, you know they're investing into into sort of you know manufacturing in in the region, um, whereas you know it's also going the other way with. Gulf states, and particularly their, you know, sovereign, using their sovereign wealth funds to invest in, you know, in China, in different parts of the Chinese economy. Um, you know, uh, mem if, if memory serves me, things like real estate, you know, sort of digital services, you know, healthcare, you know, healthcare. So you are finding certain, and this is something to watch because, because I think, you know, it's, it's part of a broader pattern where Gulf states and and their sovereign wealth funds are investing. You know, they are looking to diversify away from. The, okay, it's still predominantly, um, you know, directed towards you know more established uh, European, North American markets. But there is an interest and an appetite to you know, to look into more emerging markets. So it's not just the Chinese; it's elsewhere in Southeast Asia. You know, most recently, also there's a number of investments that the that the, the UAE has made into Brazil. So you know, this is this is something to watch because as the the earlier point that Yulia made about you know economics and politics. The two do go together, and this is, you know, as the as the economic footprint deepens, so does political interest, but also political concern as well. So, thank you. Fantastic, thank you all three. Uh, I think you gave us a lot of food for thought. But uh, so the time has come for opening up to questions from the audience. Uh, so, uh, please introduce yourself. Um, quickly before you ask a question. Uh, yes, so, so Jürgen Jensaugen, I'm a senior researcher at PRIO. I, I was very intrigued by this idea that uh, China gets involved in mediation not just because they want success and to portray themselves as successful, but in a sense also to undermine the US in the sense of saying, look, we can also mediate, right? You, you don't have a monopoly here. So I'm curious about another kind of similarly related field, and that, that's uh, foreign aid. Um, and I'm asking this with a particular example, just because I'm researching that particular example, and that's, that's UNRWA, where the US made a big thing of, of pulling out, uh, and then the US came back in, fine, but UNRWA is in a financial crisis, and, and China gives basically symbolic money. But I've heard kind of rumors from diplomats working on this that there is an idea that China might step in with money there, not because they want to really finance the Palestinians as, as such, uh, but because that would be a cheap way of getting soft power, in a sense, of saying, look, if the U.S. is withdrawing, you know, we can, we can take that place. And in terms of all the other money they're pouring in, that's not really big money. So I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on that particular example would be great for me, <laughs> out of egoistic interest. But in, in general, that sort of space of, of soft power and, and buying in that way. I mean, the, the, the thing to say about Israel-Palestine is it's quite notable that, you know, 
sometimes if you follow sort of Israeli commentators, they're quite sort of, some of them can be quite sort of skeptical and critical of, of, of the Chinese, particularly the language that the Chinese use at the UN, because they tend to sort of use the language of, you know, yes, they are supportive of the, they, they support like the rest of the international community, the Oslo process, but they also can be quite critical of sort of Israeli settlements, of, of what Israel's doing at, on the international stage. And that can sometimes be kind of used as, you know, as you talk, talked about, in a symbolic way, um, you know, sort of just a, a nod to, you know, sort of past, you know, solidarity with the Palestinians. Uh, but, but then, of course, on the flip side, you know, with Israel, they're not, you know, when you look at sort of the economic relationship that the Chinese have with Israel versus the Palestinians, it is far, far larger, far more important. And yet, you know, there's no chance that the Israelis are going to, sorry, or the Chinese are going to try and, you know, use that as an economic leverage with the Israelis to make, get them to make concessions. Um, certainly, I mean, when we look at, go back to the, the American, you know, trade war with the Chinese, around 2019, there was a lot of pressure from the Americans on, on Israel that you now need to make a decision after about a decade of, you know, contracts and, and investments being sort of agreed between the Israelis and Chinese, particularly in places that was considered to be quite sensitive, like the Haifa port, there was a sense that, you know, now the Americans are saying, look, we, we're now we require you to start become more careful with the Chinese. And, and the Israelis responded to that. You know, they set up that, uh, you know, sort of co co committee to look over foreign ownership of, of, of new investments. You know, not directed at China, but it was. And, you know, there, and there, was, there has been a sort of a notable decline in, in Chinese investments into the country, uh, perhaps as a result. So there is this sense that, you know, we will do one thing with, for the Palestinians, as you say, sort of, you know, make, make, make these symbolic payments, make these statements at the UN. But on the other hand, we won't do anything to adversely affect our relationship with Israel. I mean, even, they, even if they are annoyed with the fact that Israel's, you know, gone that way, they also recognize that Israel is in the US orbit, and that's not going to change. So it's kind of balancing the two. And I think that's very much sort of way what you, if you look at any of the, conf, broaden that out to the wider region, it's the same thing. So you look at the Saudis and the Iranians. The, the Chinese have relations with both sides. So it's not in their interests to, 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 to go with one or the other and, and upset, upset them, so. I just have one thing to add to this, um, and I agree with what all guys' points. Um, but again, you know, when we're talking about the UN, uh, I think China sees UN as a very important pillar of its, its broader um, ambitions. That's the part of the international order they like, you know, this one country, one vote. Um, especially with Israel-Palestine, because if you remember, China had the um, the seat of the presidency of the, the um, UN Security Council um, when the last flare-up in Gaza happened in 21, May 21. And they kept using that as a cudgel to beat Americans with, because America, of course, is supporting Israel and saying, we're, we're going to block any vote on this. And the Chinese were saying, why? <laughs> you know, what are you afraid of? They know that with the Palestinians, when they support Palestinians rhetorically in these types of international fora, they get 22 other Arab League states that, that vote with them on stuff that matters, right? So working with Palestine, it's very, you know, it's it bald self-interest. I don't think China really, like like you said, the economic side is, is just vastly, there's, there's miles between the two, but they use Palestine to get all the Arab countries on board for stuff that China wants to achieve in these forums. Because they know that Israel, uh, you know, despite the Abraham Accords, uh, I don't know any Arabs, any Arabs that support it on a personal level. You know, maybe the governments do, but the people don't. So China knows that this is deeply unpopular, and it's a way to, again, I look at it through great power stuff a lot, but they use this as a, as a tool against the U.S., and they can get engagement with other Arab countries. Thanks for very interesting perspectives, all, all three. I have uh, two interrelated questions, and I'll try to make them short. Um, the first one really is about the thinking in Beijing when it comes to the potential for itself being drawn into conflict. At the moment, it seems to enjoy the luxury of mainly being an economic actor, projecting neutrality. It's been remarkable how, for example, China's been able to import a significant share of its oil from Kurdistan and from Baghdad simultaneously when it comes to Iraq. The relationship it's had both to Saudi and Iran over the years is equally remarkable. But with a deepening political engagement and also with, I'd say, deepening vulnerability with more investment, Belt and Road, development initiatives, all the rest, uh, there's a significant risk in my perspective that China could itself 
be drawn into situations where it would have to protect its interests, end up in much more difficult situation than, uh, situations than it has so far. Is that also the thinking in Beijing? And relatedly, we are, many of us following this from a far distance, and I'm no expert on uh, on this issue, seeing a China that seems to be very gradually stepping up its engagement in the region. And to some extent, it's almost been surprising how some opportunities for really getting into a vacuum and projecting power in the region is something that China has not dreamt on. Uh, take Syria, for example. Uh, of course, high risk, but also potentially high gain in, in at certain certain moments in time over the past few years uh, and they're not just not doing it but given some of the things Ilaria said as well as the three others of you are we potentially now getting close to a moment where there is a total change of gears in Beijing where it's not only a little bit more of this a little bit more of the other but where it's actually getting in and starting to project power in a sense much more aggressively, not only aggressively in a military sense, but but nonetheless more aggressively. Are we see? Should we should we be watching out for that moment, or is that moment not going to come? In your opinions, I think what it's been projecting in terms of power is rhetorical power and political power, but military power, no. I don't see that happening anytime soon. Um, you know, how Beijing is looking at the region, I think, and obviously I'm not, I haven't been there since 2019, probably I'll never go back. Um, but China's got a, a non-alliance policy and they have since 1982. And that's not, that's important. The, the fear of entrapment drives a lot of China's thinking on this stuff. They don't want to go into a, a, a conflict-ridden or rivalry-ridden region and get caught up in other countries um, you know, problems. They don't want to be relied on to, to solve these issues. They want to focus on their own interests. Now, what they do instead of these alliances, they have uh, partnership diplomacy. They have strategic partnerships and it's a hierarchy of countries. You know, at the top level, it's a comprehensive strategic partner. And these are the countries they think are important in, in a region, economically and politically, um, also important beyond the region and countries that offer some kind of extra, you know. So when you look in the Gulf, well, you look in the Middle East, there are five countries that are at this top level. Um, Algeria, Egypt, Iran, Saudi, and the UAE. And within the Gulf, this is interesting because of the, well, yeah, Egypt, the UAE, Saudi are all US allies or partners. Most of the countries China engages with the most deeply are US allies or partners. And that's a stability issue. I think, you know, you ask why not Syria? China's very risk averse in this stuff. They don't want to go into a place where they're going to get into a lot of political or security problems. Um, so they, they like working with those countries that they know are going to be guaranteed by US, you know, uh, security relationships that they tend to be more status quo oriented countries, more engaged in international, you know, uh, organizations. You know, Iran is, is problematic, but when you look at what China does with Iran economically, it's almost nothing. And I always thought that was a result of sanctions, but it's more than that. Iran's economy is a basket case, not just because of sanctions, but because the Islamic Republic doesn't know how to manage a, a proper economy. You know, if they try to invest in Iran, they've got to try to compete with the, the IRGC, which runs the economy. They can't, right? Corruption is rampant. It's, it's a terrible place to do business. Um, you know, so, so economically, they work with countries like the Emirates or Saudis where they're gonna make a lot of money. They can invest, there's free trade zones, there's, there's any number of reasons to, to engage with these countries in a more meaningful way. So, you know, they, they do rhetorical stuff with Iran because it, it uh, suits them politically. But if you look at every instance of the past, whatever, seven or eight years, whenever they had the chance to privilege Iran over anybody else, they chose everybody else. They throw Iran under the bus every single time. And I think that will always be the case because Iran doesn't offer them anything extra. The Saudis do, the Emiratis do, the Egyptians do. Um, what Iran offers is just, you know, a chance to push back against uh, the U.S. and work with Russia on stuff. Can I just add to, to that? Because um, the, you also talked, asked a little bit, you know, sort of talked a little bit about, you know, how they sort of minimize, might minimize their risks. And so 
when it comes to sort of conflict, they've generally sort of preferred to see you know the states in question you know manage it you know manage the the situation rather than them having to, to intervene of course when that that that's that does that's a problem that's problematic when it's the state that's breaking down um, and so then you see you know so what what you, there has been some talk about um, you know sort of the use of more you know uh, private military security contractors, but the PMSCs, but these are a lot, lot less developed uh, than, than say, for example, other com other countries, whether you know Western ones or the Russian ones, Russian one like Wagner. Um, there's still, you know, it, there's not there's not a lot of detail out about you know what they do. They do. There are some that operate around the region. In place, I believe there are some in Iraq, and there have been. There were some in the past in Sudan, um, but it's a much smaller market, and it's and and it's less perhaps less reliable. Um, as for the point you're asking about Syria, I mean, it's not really a vacuum, though, is it? Because you know, just it is. You know, there is geopolitical conflict or rivalry taking place within Syria, of which the most notable, I mean, when you think about with vis-a-vis -vis the, the Assad regime is between Russia and Turkey, sorry, Russia and Iran, and also Turkey you know, as, a, as a secondary order. So, so the Chinese are sort of late to the party there, if, if, if you will. Um, and, and certainly there was, you know, at least a few years ago, you know, pre-COVID, it's probably still the case, you know, Assad was trying to, to use these different, as he became more and more secure in his position, was trying to use his, his external partners as a way of playing them off against each other to extract, you know, to, to, to extract the resources that he needs. Um, of course, the Russians and the Iranians can't offer what the Chinese potentially could, uh, but you know, as we've pointed out, the Chinese are much more inclined to go for more, sec more stable, um, secure, less risky markets. Um, what you will see, though, is maybe not, and this is maybe where we need to distinguish, because you know, when we talk about Chinese economic interests, we tend to sort of lump them all together. As of course, there is a difference between state firms or states, state-backed firms and, and private firms, of course, albeit you know, private firms having some, you know, they can't operate without some. But yes, but you will find, but, but certainly you'll see that there's less, you know where where the big money is is really by you know the state infrastructure companies, uh, you know sort of the the but there's less of that happening in Syria, um, where you do see there has been apparently you know a few instances of sort of smaller Chinese private firms trying to do business in Syria, but this is kind of at the margins. It's trying to sort of make you know sort of profit from the the opportunities that are presented there, but not in a sort of you know let's let's settle in and in you know, a settle in, in which if you're doing infrastructure work, obviously you're thinking about bringing in not only materials but labour. There's none of that at the moment in, in Syria. But also the last point to make as well is that often we're also talking about sort of you know major Chi you know Chinese e economic presence. It is worth noting out as well, of course, that Chinese loans and Chinese investments in the region have dropped off, and that was actually happening even before 20, uh, before the COVID crisis. I think the sort of the the, key, the the peak was actually 2018, and then we start to see you know a drop off in terms of, of Chinese capital going into the region. Thanks. Uh, if I'm allowed a little bit of self-advertisement, actually, I wrote a, a short policy brief exactly on China's engagement in, in Iraq and Syria, which is there at the back if anybody's uh, interested. Um, I've got a question from Samira there at the back and then from uh, also the other side of the back room. <laughs> Hello and thank you. It was very interesting. My question actually was about um, uh, foreign policy in uh, Western countries. When I uh, listen to you all, it seems that um, um, people inside these countries in Middle East are actually mostly forgotten. And uh, it, it seems that uh, in Western countries, we assume that, uh, okay, these countries are a dictator and that their dictatorship and their violation of human rights will stop inside the countries. So we should care about our uh, interests. But uh, what we see, because Hillary was talking about like that, for example, we see a kind of ideology in a long-term investment in China's foreign policy. But uh, we may, uh, might say, see the same thing less in, for example, Western countries. My question is that, do you think that the, one of the reasons that this is problematic, because when it comes to those countries like Saudi Arabia, Iran, or for example, Rus Russia or China, these countries are, uh, we consider them as more and less dictator uh, countries. So it's easier for them to have long-term um, uh, ideology-based, uh, stable uh, strategy and uh, foreign policy. 
policy. But when it comes to Western countries, since we have this competition between um, um, political parties and short-term uh, um, uh, interests and um, benefits are important for the winning uh, in the next election for these countries and for this kind of competition, electional uh, competitions, then the, it makes them in a way forced to focus on more short-term gains in their um, um, political, in the foreign policies. So the result will be that, uh, for example, um, um, Julia, Julia was talking about the effect that middle power countries can have on those countries. Okay, when, for example, Iran and Saudi Arabia give this uh, power and influence, at least in the surface, to China, the first thing that it happens is that um, this uh, system will be at least presented as a, uh, something uh, even more powerful in their country, so it affects their domestic um, policy and politics, uh, and it also affects the, the more powerful China becomes, it will also affect uh, on uh, Western countries too. And um, uh, when it comes to military uh, influence, as we know that China sold actually uh, weapons and missiles to Iran, and then they gave technology of missile uh, building uh, to Iran too. So I mean, mm, um, this is really important to consider that um, uh, it's important to, to know that dictatorship does not stop inside these countries. And when they get enough power, they do affect us, like uh, Russia is uh, doing uh, uh, their attack on uh, Ukraine, and it becomes uh, the more and more, as you said, that uh, relationship between economy and policy and politics, it will, we will uh, perhaps see the same uh, uh, issues uh, with China and uh, other countries too. Thank you. I wonder if we uh, can collect the other question as well before you guys respond. Thank you so much. My name is Beata Paragi. I'm working as an associate professor at Corvinus University of Budapest. My question is very simple, and it concerns a bit research methods and communication between Chinese and uh, Arabic officials. So which is the language that they cooperate, communicate? Is it Chinese, Arabic, or do they use English as a mediating language? And it obviously concerns me because it affects researchability. To a great extent, uh, also, I think. So thank you so much. Thank you. Whenever somebody says I have a very simple question, I, I'm thinking, this isn't going to be simple at all. Um, but no, but thanks. You, you, you did exactly what you set out to do. Um, Chinese diplomats um, are very good Arabic speakers. So usually when they engage with um, their regional interlocutors, it's in their, their own language. Um, we don't see that so much from Western countries, which is something that I think the, the Arab countries respect and admire. They, they like this, right? Um, so, yeah, it's mostly done uh, through, and they've got great interpreters too. But, but to that as well, I mean, there's of course the, you know, back in December when Xi Jinping was, you know, in, in Riyadh and at the end of that summit with the, with the other GCC countries, there was that declaration that came out which uh, made reference to the Abu Musa and Tumb Islands and, you know, sort of UAE association with them. And it's quite, and, and it, got, it got quite a bit of attention in the media at the time because, you know, there was this discussion as to how, how did the, you know, how did the Chinese sort of sign off on this this statement, um, you know, was it an oversight, or, you know, was it, because of course it, it prompted the Iranians to, you know, to call in you know, the Chinese ambassador. Um, so there is, you know, we, I mean, I agree, I agree completely, completely agree with what, with, with what Jonathan's saying that, yes, Chinese diplomats are excellent Arabic speakers, but there, but there is this slip up and it has, which is sort of, which got magnified as well. Um, so, the, the, so just the point, the, the, the point that I just wanted to, to raise, the, 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 the second, the, the previous question about, you know, this, this idea of, um, you know, sort of authoritarian, authoritarianism and, and, and democracy and, and the relationship uh, with, 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 the, with the states in the region. I mean, in terms of sort of, you were, you were alluding to sort of where are the people in all of this and public opinion and where do the Chinese, how, and, and if you don't mind, if I might just riff a little bit from this, it's, you know, sort of what, what is, what is, what is, um, you know, the regional public opinion towards China. And what we've seen, you know, insofar as polling can show this, because of course there are issues with doing 
uh, you know, pu public opinion surveys in, in that part of the world. There is actually a wide range of, of opinion, brought, um, sort of from, from very sort of skeptical, suspicious in a place like Israel, you know, through to very supportive and very favorable towards China in a place like Tunisia. Um, but, you know, broadly, but it's been growing over time as well. And I think, and that's perhaps sort of a reflection of um, sort of, you know, China's growing presence within the region. And there is, of course, you know, there are, you know, China's general sort of modus operandi with, is, is, to, is to relate, is to engage with the, with primarily with the states. It does not really deal with, you know, sort of the you know, political actors beneath the level of the state. Uh, that, of course, makes it a little bit easier, but it also it presents a potential problem later on. So if conflict does, or does, does um, explode, it, does, it potentially means that China is left without an, additional, an alternative partner to talk to. Um, the, you know, there is there are a number of sort of Chinese, you know, sort of institutions in the, in the region that uh, are sort of attempts to try and you know in, in, uh, facilitate soft power or ex, you know person to person exchange. Obviously, the most obvious being the Confucius Institutes. Um, what what works been done sort of suggests that you know those, those who sort of you know uh, contact and use the institutes you know do so for, you know to use the language you know language you know to, to learn the language for example. But they do so in a very instrumental way that it's not necessarily sort of a love of China, but more sort of, you know, practical, pragmatic, you know, uh, considerations about sort of potential employment, you know, economic opportunities. Uh, the last thing to say as well is that, you know, that it's, it's been, it's, it's, China's very much had this kind of very sort of, you know, high level or sort of, if you want to call it high level or sort of state level uh, relationship, uh, you know, throughout its past. I mean, even when it wasn't, you know, as I pointed out in sort of the late 60s, early 70s, lagging behind the, the Soviets in terms of, you know, uh, contact, you know, sort of contact with some of the re, uh, the regimes you know it's still even if it was engaging primarily with with non-state actors like the PLO it did not differentiate even within the PLO so for example there were you know sort of uh, uh, you know political factions like the you know the popular front for the liberation of Palestine you know sort of that were very kind of you know socialist in orientation and sort of more identified with China than than the than than say the Fatah faction and yet China have never really um, uh, engaged with them in, in a meaningful way. It always focused its, it always did, and it still does, focus most of its engagement with, with the Palestinian faction through Fatah, and through the, partly because PLO, Fatah, PA, you know, uh, leadership is kind of synonymous with each other. But even if you look at Hamas, I mean, with one or two exceptions, the Chinese have only ever met Hamas delegations once or twice. Um, it really only deals with the PA. So, you know, it, and I think that sort of tells you a lot of it. Well, I just go back to the point I made earlier that this also runs the risk of leaving them without potential engagement with other, you know, other other political actors. But for now, it works. I just had a, a couple of points about your uh, question, Samir, and a lot of it, Guy already hit. But you know, my my perspective is different because I live in the Gulf, where you know, especially in the UAE, where people tend to be very supportive of the official line because they get a lot from their government and they're, they're very content with, with the state. And, and like I said, China tends to work um, in support of the status quo within the region. They work with governments. If you look at the past couple of years, they've put out two very important and underanalyzed um, programs. One's called the Global Development Initiative. One's called the Global Security Initiative. And like the Belt and Road, when these were rolled out in 2013 and we never saw anything in a lot of Western press about it until about 2016, uh, the same thing is kind of happening on this. They're, they're outreach to countries mostly in the global south. Um, and you see a lot of, of uh, engagement with Middle East countries on this. Um, and going back to Guy's point about the security through development narrative, China's like, the idea is if we build strong states, then the, the, the drivers of insecurity go away. The, at the popular level, people will stop joining uh, revolutionary groups or, or transnational ideological groups or religious groups, and they'll just you know, be satisfied economically, so they're not going to fight. So the idea is build a strong state, and you get security and development. So they don't really reach out to people in the region unless it's through very kind of thin, almost propaganda-type soft power. Um, you know, their, their media has increased in the region, mostly because they feel, uh, you know, the West has this uh, media hegemony they refer to, that, that a lot of the world's perceptions of China are driven by Western media. So they say, let's build Arabic language or Persian language or Hebrew language media that can speak directly to the people. Um, the problem is it's, it's really heavy-handed kind of 
Marxist-Leninist propaganda-style writing, so nobody wants to read this stuff. So they don't really talk directly to the people very much. Um, I've spent a lot of time over the past, well, since September, I've been running this program, um, this research project for the Atlantic Council. I was in Israel, Egypt, Bahrain, Saudi, um, Qatar and the UAE, talking just to those people, you know, like getting, talking to this, um, to the American University of Cairo and saying, bring together as many sharp people in China as you can find. And I want to talk to them about their perceptions of China and Egypt. Well, there aren't many Chinese specialists in Egypt. There aren't many anywhere in the Middle East, it turns out. There's a few. Um, Israel seems to be the best represented in terms of local knowledge production about China. But most countries, what they, at the popular level, like when I ask my students about China, they know nothing. Nothing. Um, they're not learning about it. They're not studying it. They don't know the language. They don't know the, you know, what they're getting is top down. The government says China's important, so don't say anything bad about China. Don't talk about Xinjiang. Don't talk about Hong Kong. Don't talk about Tibet. Don't talk about Taiwan. So that's kind of why we'd look at it from, from you know, not the popular level because there's just not much there. And I think that's going to be a problem long term because what China's doing is supporting a lot of repressive governments that, you know, people don't like. When, when Raisi went to Beijing in February, the Chinese awarded him. It was so awful. The, the award they gave him was pr for promoting um, peace and stability throughout the world. This at a time when the Iranians are killing kids and, and locking up and beating women. You know, now if you look back in history, the last, you know, it, the last leader that the Iranians had visit before uh, the Shah was deposed was uh, Hua Guafeng, the then Chinese leader, Secretary General. The Iranian people were livid. How does this guy come to our country and give legitimacy to this government at a time when we're all protesting, we want him gone? So when Raisi goes to Beijing and gets this medal for promoting peace and stability, I'm thinking Iranian people are going to be livid. This is going to be a horrible, yeah. Excuse me, exactly. It's, it really varies from country to country. Yeah. Because I know at least for the event, it comes to Iran, people are very against the sure. relationship between Iran and China. And when uh, you were talking about the uh, relation, uh, like why China suddenly came uh, the curious for the relationship between Iran and Saudi Arabia, it could be actually that the vice versa, because both Saudi Arabia and Iran had actually reasons to uh, show um, USA that which price you will pay if you don't uh, uh, like uh, compromise with us because now we are giving this credit to China and it's not it. So, uh, and, and it just make them stronger and stronger. And, uh, it, uh, I, I, I'm sure that they come to our borders too. It's not that they finish there, both economically and military. On this note, I'm afraid we have reached the end of this very interesting... <laughs> on this happy note, uh, we've reached the end of this uh, fantastic seminar. I would like um, for everybody to join me in a round of applause for our speakers. Um, thank you all so much. Um, yeah, I've learned a lot. This um, We could easily sit here for another five hours and still not have exhausted all the topics, but... Sure. <laughs> but yeah, please do approach them, um, talk to them, read their amazing um, um, articles, books, publications. Um, thank you all so much for the questions. Thank you to Christian and the Prio Middle East Center, uh, not the least to um, uh, Eva and the communications department for uh, uh, making everything run smoothly. Have a good day. <laughs>